and welcome to the first edition of the Counterpressed Book Club because we are smart people. Uh, I'm in the studio. <laughs> we all read a book we this week. We all read a book, guys. Um, I'm in the studio with Jesse Park Humphreys and producer Becky. We smashed through this book. I read I it know. one day. I'm yeah. a genius. It was probably Becky the- was making me stressed because she was reading it like so fast. I felt pressure to keep I, up. I also was like, I don't want anyone else to overtake me. But I also was taking notes and highlighting, so... I'm just a quick reader. So if anyone hasn't seen the homework that you might have seen on Monday's show and we tweeted about it was to read Alex Scott's How Not To Be Strong, her memoir that came out last year. And there hasn't been a lot of books about women's football or women's footballers through the years. But this, you know, she's certainly one of the most high profile women in English football full stop and around the world in terms of in women's football right now. So this felt like the perfect way to start our new little counterpress book club. Part of these Thursday shows, we want to do a little bit of pop culture, movies, TV, you know, happenings in the world of women's football, best bits like we did last week. But we also want to talk about books because there's not a lot of them in women's football and this was a perfect place to start. So we smashed through it. I think it's certainly one of the fastest books I've ever read. You read it the slowest out of all of us. I know, but I'm a slow reader (laughs) and I'm very, very proud of the fact that I'm a slow reader. It was actually doing work, I think, at the start of the week. To be fair, I just on Tuesday just sat down and was like, okay, I'm going to read this book today. But also, I did it. When you set yourself a competition or a target, (laughs) Becky smashes through it. And we were all messing each other saying, oh, really enjoying this. Um, So, yes, today we're going to be talking about Alex Scott's How Not to Be Strong. There are going to be some themes in this episode that may be difficult for some people. We want to add a, a trigger warning now before we get onto it. We're going to be discussing uh, domestic violence, abuse and addiction in this podcast. And if you need support around some of these themes or want to read uh, around these themes, we're going to be dropping some resources in the episode show notes as well. So we just want to let you know before we get on to talking about this book. So we're going to get onto it after this. So, guys, we were messing each other throughout reading this about how much we all generally really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I say that in a kind of surprised tone because you <laughs> hope ne- Alex doesn't listen. Well, you never you never know with these books, yeah. right? You never know. And I, you're not a nonfiction queen. I am not. I I think maybe this is actually possibly the only nonfiction book I have read what? beginning to end. What? Ever. Okay. Ever. I am I am a nonfiction queen. So this is my bread and butter. I love anything football, autobiography, biographical, memoir related. And I think Enya Lukos is a really good example of a a memoir done really well. And similar to Alex's book, it's kind of like, you know, life lessons. And I think this model is one that, you know, we've seen a lot with Carl's book with Marcus Rashford. That is one of the best selling books of all time in England. But I think it's a really good model. And I really like the way that both Enya Luko and Alex Scott have done these books. And I I wasn't sure what to expect because I wasn't sure how they were going to feed in some of her life learnings with, you know, her overall story and experiences. But I think it has the perfect balance of, you know, this is my raw, difficult experiences that I had. This is what I learned. And also, you know, this is what you might be be able to take forward. And in that sense, I found it relatable in so many different ways because I think when you see someone like her who's so high profile now, who's you know on television multiple times a week, you know has over a million followers on Instagram, and sometimes you feel like you know what what can I relate to her? How how is my life any similar to hers? But this book made me think, damn Alex, yeah. you're just like us. She's just a normal girl. 
just a normal gal from East London. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it definitely, I was like intrigued as to how much football there would mm. be in the book. Cause I feel like Alex Scott op- occupies like this really interesting position where she's kind of so incredibly well known, but not necessarily as a, a footballer yeah. or like the like the details of her footballing career I would imagine are quite unfamiliar to like the Strictly One show. Yeah, that whole other audience her. she's got. And I think what was so cool about this book was to be able to to talk about the football elements and kind of introduce that like history of women's football maybe to an audience who wouldn't have seen that before. But also like the transition from football to the rest of her career I think was something that I found really interesting and, you know, it's something that a lot of footballers I know like can find hard and it's it's kind of wild like most of us don't suddenly after you know 10 years of doing mm. one job have to totally start from scratch doing something else and I thought that element was um was probably the bit of the book I enjoyed the most let's start where she starts which is you know her childhood and the book starts in a very dark place around um something that that Alex hadn't really shared I don't think before she she did this book which is around her her experiences with her dad and living in in, in abusive home um and living with with, with a, an alcoholic father who was you know physically and emotionally abusing her her mum and her brother and it starts in this in this dark place um which hits you very hard as you read the book um but I think what I thought was was really important is the is is starting there but also unraveling that trauma throughout the whole book so you can kind of really see in your own eyes and I know we all know this about the the way that trauma impacts people but I think she lays it out in such a way that's like throughout the rest of my life in every single chapter you see the impact of those first experiences as a child growing up in this environment and how that influenced every single thing she experienced from then on I think it was really important to start there and say right this is what I grew up in and now it's like right all the pieces of the puzzle kind of make sense I think um also what I found from that book is like, you know, she could have she could have written a memoir as soon as she retired from football. Um, but you kind of get the sense that she wasn't ready for that then. And actually, it's so important that she recognised how that abuse shaped who she was as a person and all those choices that she made in her life and all the unravelling of that and what that meant. I think it was really important that she did that before she wrote this book and it's like to me it's like so clear that she has done so much work and so much therapy to like work that out and I think that is what makes it like a really really um uh great story and you can see the um the journey that she's been on so it's not just you know here's the story of my abuse it's like here's how I also dealt with that and I'm still dealing with it and I think that's really really I, like I really... think it's the Anne Steele dealing with it which was something I yeah. found really powerful as well and also you know the way she kind of talked about her relationship with her mum and brother and how maybe they didn't talk about it still because they weren't um, ready yeah. and I thought her letter to her mum was like one of really the most emotional, powerful which, which comes right, towards like the end of the book right towards the end where she writes this kind of open letter and she says 
mum, I don't know if you're going to read this or if you're still reading it, uh, but, you know, the, this is how much I love you and this is what I, you know, I want you to enjoy your life and everything. And she also reveals that her mum has been diagnosed with MS. And, yeah, that letter I thought was beautiful because in it she says, you know, I don't know if you are ready to talk about things and maybe I was forcing that on you. Um but I also really enjoyed the way in the intro she started with even saying writing this book is a cathartic release. Yeah. And as soon as I read that intro, I thought, do you know what? You're so right, because I think when I've had difficult moments in my life, I've always find writing things down and lots of people. I know you do a bit of journaling yeah. as well, Becky, like that it, for me is the most powerful thing, because if you feel like you can't express something to someone vocally or you can't you find it hard to process things writing them down, I think, is so powerful. And I like the way she started by saying, you know, this this in itself has been a massive bit of therapy for me because I'm putting everything out there. I'm, I'm acknowledging things in my head. And I think that was an amazing way to start and then move on to the experience with her family. And I think that's quite well, how, how that works quite well and how she then kind of chron chronologically moves through things. And then we get to kind of the next phase of her childhood, which is, you know, this experiences of football, playing football in the cages of her estate, which is very similar to Enia Luko's story, you know, very a, a real template experience for a lot of women's footballers of that generation. Um, Chloe Kelly, also someone that played a lot of cage football growing up. Uh, Farrah Williams, you know, this generation, I think it's really interesting how when you read a lot of these memoirs and, you know, Beth Mead's story, very similar, Lucy Bronze, like they all played football with boys growing up. Mm. And I'm really intrigued to see when we might see a shift of that experience, you know, for the, for the first generation that might be the generation that grew up playing with girls and how that differs. Because for so many of these footballers, they talk about it in a way that that, that that's what made them it great. Shaped them, yeah. That shaped them. That shaped their skills. It shaped their physicality, their bravery, everything. And I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing. I'm I'm almost like, let's not have girls teams. <laughs> let's still carry having mixed teams. Yeah, but I I think we should. You know, I think it should be something that like we're aware of. I think especially in the the context of kind of gender battles in inverted commas within sport but you know uh, the like controversy around uh, trans competitors and stuff like that but all of this ties into you know if we continue to like have this real like essentialist notion of that like boys and girls are different um to, to the extent that runs all the way down to a really young age. That's really harmful. And we've seen that be harmful because that's why girls didn't get to play football mm. for ages. Yeah. And that's why these stories are actually like exceptions, right? Because uh, they're girls who were like, able, like boys let them play football with yeah. them, right? Which isn't, you know, they're, they're stories that we will never hear about girls who didn't like have that opportunity and that as confidence. a result. Yeah, and that or confidence. Or a big brother to, to be like, she's playing mm. right or exactly. in the case of like you know kelly smith they was she was told you can't play with the boys yeah. because we don't want you to play and that's like that's a talent that could have been lost and alex talks about that in the first tournament that that she could experience which was like a tower hamlets um, kind of like five aside summer get together and all the teams are coming to this one place to play and her brother and his mates were like no we're having an all boys team sorry you can't play and she was like gutted but then one of the kids was sick that 
that day and Alex got to take their spot and that's how she ended up getting scouted. It's a very kind of, you know, serendipitous mm. sort of sliding doors moment and it was she was almost lost to the hands of time as well, well because if she hadn't have got that spot, that kid hadn't have been ill, shout out her cousin, whoever it was, that ended up getting <laughs> sick and, and she got to play in front of this guy who was working with Arsenal at the time and said, you're a raw talent and we've got to have you. I mean, I think that that theme of resource and women's football and underdevelopment and feeling like you're always fighting, I think that is fed throughout the whole of the book. And Alex Scott did retire quite early, so it's not like her story is, you know, an old story of, of times gone by. Like, it's still a very real reality of her experiences and and a conversation that is is still moving, even though... The game has become more commercialised. There's more money flowing through it, especially you know, we've just seen the transfer window close and, and some of the fees that were being thrown around in that window. But it feels like a lot of the things Alex references that she was fighting for and feeling like, you know, in, in some of her core Arsenal days from the outside, Arsenal was looking like this bastion of, of being ahead of the curve in the way that players were treated like, it's really interesting that even very late on when, you know, in, in kind of the peak of her career, she felt like the English game was not going anywhere and she had to go to America to take the next step. And she felt like training two, three times a week wasn't going to be good enough, even though Arsenal had seemed like they were, you know, flying ahead. She talks about Man City coming in and taking an interest in her when they launched their team and feeling like they were definitely getting things right and they were going to give players these resources and they were going to have the facilities and the training. And it, what feels frustrating, I guess, is we are sort of in many ways having some of these same conversations about from the outside looking in, the WSL, sometimes these clubs look like they're doing so much more than they actually were. And even think about what happened with Birmingham City a few seasons ago when those players had to basically go to the media and say we're getting treated like shit and we want to do something about it. I think that the Arsenal bit is really interesting because especially at that time, they were like the club, right? They were like the biggest, the best. And, and from an English still... perspective, from an English perspective, I never would have thought, oh yeah, you'd have a better time in America. I would have thought Arsenal was the place yeah. to be. But yeah, still she wasn't happy because she was... She, I mean, the amount of jobs that she talks about having at the time she worked at Arsenal. Working as a postie, working in the laundry. Yeah, being like a teacher. Being a teacher. And we you know, we spoke to Jilly about the five jobs she was doing and the way she had to get to all these different places. There was so much pressure on these players and they were getting paid, what'd she say, 15 grand or something yeah. a and year? And that's a central... That was a central England contract, yeah. I think she was saying as well. And I guess that was like the big development, right? That the original England central contracts yeah, became that the got. real yeah. uh, basis for, for lots of these players. But yeah, and I think also it is, uh, I think, a timely reminder as well that, you know, stuff that like might look rosy from the outside mm. of lots of clubs isn't necessarily... And I'm sure... If you lifted the lid on every WSL club, you would see like rubbish inside it. <laughs> to, to like utter trash. To differing elements. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's not a single club in the mm. WSL that no. has and, and even the fact as well that, you know, there are people that Alex talks about in the book who make some kind of spurious calls and decisions who are still in leadership roles. Well, I was going to say as well, I think what's really interesting is we're going to talk about some of her really funny media uh, references in here. But one of the things I think was really interesting was how, you know, Arsenal early on got a chance to move into London Colney, into the Arsenal main men's training ground because they were, you know, based 
out of Highbury for a long time and obviously Highbury is no more and they're now in the Emirates. But it was really interesting referencing the moment in which she was fighting to try and do a media, well-paid media thing. Um, and she, oh, sorry, she not that was a slightly different one, we'll come to that later, but she wanted to do that interview. So the Guardian had approached her about doing an interview and she was trying to arrange it at London Colney and Arsenal said no. And she said, well, why? And they said, you can't get access to the, the training ground because it's only for the men at that time. And she had to go and do the interview in a Starbucks. Now that interview then gets published by the Guardian. And it comes up being headline news, and she references in the book how Casey Tony, Casey Tony, Casey Stoney texts her and says, "Good for you for for talking about that." And then off the back of that, suddenly Arsenal women have their own section. And what you see now, having been to to Colney, is like the 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 developments that have been a long time coming. Like Arsenal women finally now have like their own. Um, uh, sort of kitchen staffed area and their own section has really been developed there but it's 2023 and they've just got their own kitchen for the women's team so it's like these things happen so slowly, slowly. and essentially I think a lot of the stuff that we've seen in women's football and what that example from Alex and the Guardian interview proves that like a lot of the time if you kick up a fuss and leak to the media, it will work. <laughs> I also thought it was really interesting. I think you can see the shift. I know we've spoken about, you know, sometimes things feel like they haven't changed, but I think you certainly can feel the shift when Alex talks about doing her PFA qualification and getting that media experience and, you know, all the stuff that she was doing behind the scenes, doing her little camcorder stuff, the Scotty cams, um, doing Arsenal TV stuff. Like, a lot of the time... I think you would forget someone like her and her position right now was doing all that behind the scenes because also I think women's football media has shifted quite a lot now and, you know, someone like Leah Williamson is going to get stopped in the street whereas at that point, Alex Scott was a B-knock within women's football and Arsenal and, and a little bit with England. But apart from that, no one really knew who she was. But I think the media opportunity that's been provided, like, for example, if Leah Williamson was out getting a diploma in media and sitting in a... Well, you know, England, doing, England is she men. still doing her accountancy? Oh, I don't who know. Knows? Yeah, please so. tell me that you've stopped. You don't uh, need it. And doing an England men's media press conference. I, I think maybe she could help us with our tax returns, though. So. I, that's what I was Leah. just thinking. Here's up, Leah. If you want Come us to give you like an extra hundred quid. <laughs> and I think that was another one for me as well that was kind of like relatability tick. Because I, I, having done EFL men's games where you are literally the only woman in the room, like that whole experience where she talks about going in there and everyone kind of being like, who? you was really like god been there done that but i think it's really interesting to know about all the things she was doing because it, it just shows that you know people people aren't put there just for the sake of it like she was doing the hard graft i think i just um when i was just looking through the book then i came across um a part where which i think like kind of maybe helped put her in this idea that she needs to start doing all of these other things before she retires is her mum talking to family and friends and being like, oh, you know, she's a footballer. Mm. She wants to be a footballer. And people being like, okay, but what else? Yeah. Like, what else is she going to do? Because at that time, like, you... Well, she was you not had earning to, yeah. very much at yeah. all. And I think maybe players don't have to start thinking about it as early as she did now. I do think that it's vastly different from the men's game where they do have to start thinking about it mm. a lot sooner. But I think that they have a bit more time than I Alex think the said. other thing like I did some um, work during the Euros with uh, like Visa who do this program called The Second Life right which is like about helping 
um, footballers after they move on. And something that was really interesting about that is obviously like football can just stop like out of nowhere. And they were actually talking about the shift from that exactly like that players who now come in who are like maybe teenagers in their early 20s will have salaries that will obviously kind of like support them in a different way to what players of like Alex's generation has. But like that doesn't mean that like you kind of don't have to, to start thinking mm-hmm. about that. And they they were actually talking about like how in some ways they're a bit worried that like it's not like men's football that people are going to earn amounts that they can live off for the rest of their life. They might earn stuff that's going to make you like very nicely paid for a decade or so mm. but that you know like if you it's very easy when you're still basically a kid to be like spending it to up. spend it yeah, yeah. so I, I think that's really interesting and I think you know Alex is I think something that will be Alex's legacy will be when you look at all the firsts that she did within media is also showing to like players just generally how you can like transition to a really exciting career that still includes football totally and I think she she talks really honestly about how you know, Hope Powell was someone who really wanted so many women to go into coaching. And she's had an impact on lots of players who have. But Alex knew from doing, you know, badges and stuff that it wasn't going to be for her. And she found another way. And I think it's so important to let people explore that. Another bit that was really interesting, actually, and I think it's something that we saw snippets of when Kristen Press and Tobin Heath came over and played for Manchester United, which was this real difference in the mindset between development of of football in the states and the way that that football footballers are kind of brought up in English women's football especially and I've talked a lot about this before where I think that the culture in England is kind of one of losers and I think we saw this play out in this book um Becky there's a specific quote that you found really interesting which I think kind of sums this up I think this part of the book is really interesting she's talking about playing under Tony DeChica in America for Boston Breakers while also playing under Hope Powell for England. Um, And she talks a lot about the positive reinforcement that she felt like Tony had given her and that she was going to play the best that she could for him to repay that. Um, And so I'm going to read out a quote from after the 2011 World Cup against France where they got knocked out on penalties. Hope had accused certain players of cowardice for not stepping up to take a penalty. This is why I'm such a big believer in mindset. When Hope asked the team who wanted to take a penalty, she was greeted by blank faces and no response. If the England team had been instilled with a positive mindset, then I think you would have seen a whole load of hands go up. But we were managed through fear, fear of losing, fear of doing something wrong, fear that your contract could be taken away from you at a month's notice. Yeah, I, I, th- I, I think that was really interesting because I think it does kind of sum up the difference and a lot of the reasons why US have probably had a lot of success in the women's game is because... As well as being tremendous athletes, winners, fighters, very competitive, I think American culture is just much more happy, clappy and positive than English. And I think that feeds into the sporting culture too. And she references a lot of her experiences on the Boston Breakers about even when she was fighting, was it Heather Mitts yeah. was her was was fighting for the starting right back spot. Alex came in, took that spot off her, and Heather spent hours with Alex after training, helping her get better. And Heather ended up losing her spot in the US Women's National Team because she moved to left back and lost her right back spot. And it was a very selfless, 
sort of thing that she did and she did it in order to better the team and she did it to be positive because she didn't want a negative mindset. And I think we see that kind of throughout the book through Alex's experience, Alex's experience and I think that's something that might have shifted recently with England, especially with Serena Vigman. Yeah. I think she's installed more of that. Well, but you, see it with, you see it with Phil Neville. Like the, the the what I wrote down in my notes and the immediate thing that I thought was about the 2019 Women's World Cup semi-final where we had that penalty right at the end to equalise and you just I knew we were going to miss it you just you look at them and no one wants to take it mm. they're all they're, they're all arguing about who's going to take it because they don't want to whereas if someone is like I want to fucking take this then I think you have like a much better chance of actually just like putting it in the back of the net but I think Steph Horton like kind of like well she was the captain right yeah, she thought she, oh fine I'll do to, it yeah. Yeah. yeah she had to the other thing as well with the Phil Neville stuff is um, when they're all around the campfire Camp- oh, and he's God, talking about all the times like he failed to get called I know. up for England Let's and you're like okay failure. this is like just a narrative <laughs> yeah, of like yeah. failure and yeah. yeah and actually that's obviously stuff we've seen in the US actually in kind of retaliatory managers and players being kind of left out of teams as a result and you know there's a lot of interesting discussions I think to be had around player power and how that's kind of developing in the women's game you know as players get you know bigger reputations than their their managers basically Um, and obviously that's going to like change depending on leadership styles but I definitely think that's like a real positive with kind of um, increased salaries and you know people knowing who you know this idea of being like if you want to walk away and go no I don't want to play for you as a manager like there's going to be someone else who's going to give you an offer and even like earlier in the book when Alex is talking about like going to um, Birmingham yeah. and how she didn't like really want to but like there was like a kind of better financial offer and she felt like at the time Vic Akers didn't really have much respect for mm-hmm. her and all that and stuff. And that's when she became a right back and the rest is bloody history. If I she know. hadn't made that move, I know. who knows what would have happened? I um, think you're right about the um, it changing maybe under Serena Vigman but um, I also thought it was really funny that about the part where Hope Powell calls a meeting, entire meeting, just to talk about the fact that the Germany team had had specially made <laughs> T-shirts for like Euros champions in 2009. Because I think, I mean, I don't remember because I was in Box Park Pie and Out by this point, but like I assume that England women had What's also done Nike that. The home, the home well, exactly, T-shirts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you, and who does that? Americans. <laughs> NBA, yeah. NFL, NHL, you have to whatever. have it ready, just MLB. in case you don't want to look dumb. It's, I would actually like a collection of all the failed well, that's ones. The thing. Like, I'm obsessed with They those. go on eBay for loads because there, is, oh, there are warehouses full of teams that never won, but it, you've got to make it happen because you've got to believe that you're going to be winners. Yeah. And I think that's something be, we've seen throughout English women's football and English football as a whole, I think. And it's why we don't win a lot of stuff, yeah, guys. I'd like Let's to see the German ones mentality. from 2022. House. <laughs> <laughs> House. Tick. Oh, no, Adidas. Three, three stripes. Um, Something as well that, that came up that you found really interesting, I think it's a, it's a good point around labelling theory. And I think um, Alex has, has talked about this and I think it's something that as a culture, we've started to, especially the way that we view, view young people and the way that footballers are viewed and the way that clubs are, are supporting them. I think it's moving to more of a holistic approach, but certainly Alex talks about this story um, in relation to Claire Wheatley, who's now head of women's football at Arsenal, but she was a former player, then coach. And she's someone who's talked about a lot in the book because she's a big part of Arsenal women. And, you know, Alex talks about the way that she felt like 
Claire was kind of pigeonholing her in, in one of these examples and she talks about labelling theory and, and perhaps at the time, you know, where she got um, reprimanded for, for having a bad attitude on this tour of or, or when she was a, a, in the academy and kind of the way that we, we kind of pigeonhole people and thinking that, um, you know, they are that's how they're meant to behave and not really work, working to understand, you know, maybe this, maybe this is a cry for help, maybe this is a sign that this person needs support. Um, and I think... I would like to think, and I think we've seen examples that, you know, football has got better at that. And I think about, you know, Vivian Miedemar getting two weeks off to try and rest and recover after what she went through. It's just interesting to see that that culture at that time seemed quite brutal, quite black and white. It's like, you've got to be like this or you're not coming with us. And that is another example where Alex could have been lost to the system and never become uh, got 140 caps for England. And I think there's lots of other examples where kids were probably, like we were saying, lost to the system. Well, it's just crazy, isn't it, to like expect a, a teenager to yeah. basically have this like perfectly emotionally regulated yeah. life. I think regardless of separate from the stuff that Alex obviously went through as a, as a child... I just think any teenager, like, you know, it's yeah. such a... And I guess also that's kind of a legacy of when you've got people um, running stuff where they're not necessarily qualified qualified for it. Because, you know, working with kids, working with teenagers, that stuff's yeah. hard. Because if you were a teacher, if you had teacher qualification, you probably maybe would better understand, right, I, I might... Or, or you're a social worker or something, mm. you'd have a better understanding of this is the way that I need to, you know, perhaps work with this young person. Whereas... If you were ex-pro, like a lot of the a lot of coaches are, a lot of people, you wouldn't really, you know, a lot of the time that would just come across quite harsh because you wouldn't really have the understanding to be like, no, this is a young person, this is how I need to communicate. I can't and work emotionally with them. regulate my life, and I'm almost thirty. <laughs> well, I was <laughs> Tell say, me about like, it. I think that you see that, like you mentioned, Viv. She, I think that's important, but I do think it's very different because, again, she's an adult who can better communicate True. her needs, and Alex is. I mean. I, I obviously I think this is the first time that Alex has openly spoken about her abuse. So, you know, those people around her probably didn't know how much she'd been through, but she was obviously an extremely like troubled child because of it. And it's so difficult to read the adults around her who are supposed to support her and protect her, not give her even a like tiny bit of the benefit of the doubt. Um, and And you'd hope that, those you know like you said about a teacher or a social worker I think in those like academy systems like it's so important to have like the appropriate support for like literal children um and I found that really frustrating and like very interesting and also probably like um the labeling theory is especially uh rings true as a young black child in that system 100% Another part of the book that I think really spoke to us three especially uh, is, uh, is a chapter that we're going to talk about next. This is the chapter that Becky called the gay chapter. I put a, I put a post-it note and just she's with got a the gay chapter. Just, I'm going to find it just now. For it. And this is, a, this is a chapter that was, you know, discussed lots in the media and the tabloids when it came out, um, which is, I think, a really beautiful section in which you know a very tough section to read um but a very beautiful section in which uh, Alex talks about her eight-year-long relationship with a teammate Kelly Smith former England Arsenal player you know England legend and the 
ups and downs of that relationship, many of which are ups and downs that a lot of us may experience relationships. But the extreme factor in it that, you know, Kelly's talked about openly in her book and and the fact that she was an alcoholic during this time period and the strain that had on their relationship. But I felt like at its core, it was a really, like really, really tough read about kind of addiction, uh, you know, alcoholism, love, uh, vulnerability. And essentially Alex sort of says in that chapter, you know, that was the first and really only time she's loved someone like that and the first time she was vulnerable because I think about all her past experiences and often finding it hard to deal with emotions and hard to open up. She says about how she met uh, Kelly. Well, they started dating when she was 19 um, and they were in uh, Arsenal together and then they went to Boston together. Um, But it's a very, I think, amazing chapter about love and about sexuality and about queerness and about the connection that they had. But then it also opens up all these conversations that are often happening in women's football about relationships within teams, about how Hope Powell was trying to deal with it and was essentially saying to Kelly, like, you better not treat her like shit. <laughs> like, you know, look after her. Um, I need a Hope Powell in my life. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Hope, I can't think please. of anything scarier than Hope, Hope Powell phoning me up Hope, to be Hope home. Becky with her love life because she's in dire straits. She needs your hey. help. No, I'm joking. Um, but I don't know what you guys thought about this chapter. But I so and I, the way that Kelly, the way that Alex talks about Kelly. Um, and the impact that she had on her, and especially the dog oh. that she bought her that passed away. The dog, the dog getting put down is I know horrific. is really, I was really so sad. Was on the Does the dog die uh, <laughs> website? I think um, all in all, they did have a an amazing, obviously, connection and love, but it was a difficult relationship. I would like to, before we get into the the difficult parts of that relationship, I would really like to read out two of the quotes that just made my heart grow a million sizes like the Grinch oh here we go this is gonna be beautiful okay so she's talking about like being like the joker of the team yeah but with Kelly I felt the need to make her smile came from somewhere deeper a stirring in the pit of my stomach Mm. (laughs) um and then also from the off everyone at Arsenal could see what was happening before we even had a name for it ourselves we'd wind up sitting next to each other on the team coach all the time laughing together chatting during training grabbing any chance to talk or just be around each other I could see Kelly was not open in that way around anyone else I mean that is pure that is when you know that there is a connection yeah. that you're really interested in when you just want to be around them all the time I also like the way that Becky's made more notes and she probably didn't heard GCSE English <laughs> literature on this book like um, highlighting, out, highlighting all of the gay stuff I'm being like really this is so sweet Um, Yeah, it was obviously, you know, the complexities of that relationship. We will probably never know, you know, the real ins and outs because this is what Alex wanted to share. And, you know, Kelly also has her own book that came out a very long time ago. But, you know, she will have her own things to say on this as well. But it's a very intimate relationship anyway. and, And we get a few little flashes of it. But I do think it does bring up these interesting conversations about how you manage being in a relationship with a teammate because lots of people get into relationships with people they work with. It's not exactly exclusive to women's football. Been there. Oh, that's for another, that's for another podcast. Wow. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. Um, but Save it, that for Becky's book. It does. You know, there is always a power and balance. I know with people who have work, you know, standard work relationships, not on the football field. And interestingly, Alex talks about actually the football side of it, especially after they broke up, she found 
the easiest bit because it's when her mind just was free. She didn't think about it. She was distracted. And it's interesting speaking when I interviewed Sam Kerr and Christy Mewis because Sam said... I hate. I would hate to pe- for people to think that we don't play hard when we play against each other. I would hate to people th- to think that because we're dating, when we play against each other on a national team, I'm not going to you know, challenge. I'm Too not going to play hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think it's that it's that perception around how people manage those situations, which is natural. But it's that you know you can't help but think like it would have been really difficult to try and whatever was going on between them to have that not overlap on the pitch. And, you know, there are lots of couples who are very out and open about relationship. Penel Harder and Magda Eriksson at Chelsea being the prime one and conversations about where they go next as a couple in their club. They come as a pair, but there are also lots of people that, out and it, that aren't out and that's up to them and that's their, that's their private business and, you know, there's no pressure on them to do that. But it does open up all these interesting conversations that do happen in women's football and are kind of unique to the women's game. Yeah, I I think it's interesting because I think sometimes it's easy to be, because it feels so unique, um, like a unique facet of women's sport, I guess I'd say, because obviously you see this in like cricket and stuff as well. But, you know... Our fave cricket couple. (laughs) uh, That's Sarah and Catherine Brunt wearing their like cute little married name uh, shirts for the T20 World Cup. Um, But like lots of people who have like relationships and then break up have to deal with very difficult things which involve them interacting. And in some ways, I think it's easy to be like, oh, football feels like this like very unique environment. And there are there are elements where it obviously is, right? But like people have to raise kids together after they yeah. split up and, and things like that. And ultimately, everyone's going to deal with stuff differently. And I thought it was interesting, you know, Alex saying that, yeah, she found it really easy to kind of switch off and or and like just get into football and think about that. But people really noticed that Kelly was like obviously struggling. I think what's interesting about that is that later on, Alex talks about how, um, and this is like, she no- I think she noticed it further on in like her media career, is that maybe that was easier for her to do because that's what she'd had to do as a kid when she was going through this really, really tough time with her family, is that football was that escape. So she really had the ability to just like turn that off and like get to it. Um, and yeah, everybody deals with it differently. I actually had a funny conversation with Flo's girlfriend yesterday about our Uh-oh. breakups. <laughs> and Holly um, had said that going to work after her breakup was like the thing that kept her going. And I was like, I'm so glad that I am self-employed because after my breakups, I don't want to do anything. So it is, yeah, it's just like how people deal with it is very personal. I think the thing that like is is really important to remember as well and and this comes back to to a lot of things is that you know like ultimately footballers are humans whether it's about like relationships within their team or relationships just like generally or anything that's going on in their lives there's going to be points where people find it hard you know I, I know like Sam Kerr like has spoken about when she first arrived at at Chelsea um, that you know like she had a really really hard time and then everyone was talking about like whether she was going to be a flop and blah 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 and obviously it all turned out amazingly but you know it's really easy to to take away the like kind of personal context behind people's performances and whether it's about yeah like the fact that they're in a couple or not like sometimes people are just going through shit and also like it's obviously romantic relationships have like an extra level but like all all of football is interpersonal relationships with mm-hmm. your teammates and and those relationships can become complicated for other reasons other than romance. Well, romance. Actually, yeah. Another interesting thing is um when Alex talks about uh the issues around Mark Sampson and Eli- yeah. Elia Luco and kind of feeling 
uh, bad almost as like a black woman on the team, but she'd kind of sort of checked out of England mm. and wasn't involved. But, you know, that's a great example, I guess, of how like inter-squad, I don't want to say politics because it was obviously dynamics. so much bigger than that. But yeah, dynamics can like, beyond like a romantic level, can be like really impactful, um, yeah. you know, regardless. I, I, I did really like the way that I think for both herself and, and the way she talks about Kelly, it's almost like they know that that eight-year relationship shaped both of them now in a positive way, even though there were clearly some dark moments and Kelly's you know, had dealt with some real darkness with alcoholism and, and, you know, Alex references that and Kelly's talked about in her own book about, about that disease and how it impacted so much of Alex's life in general. But I do think what's really nice is that they reflect on the growth that they both made, even though there were some difficulties and dark moments in that relationship, they wouldn't be the people they are now and have almost the happiness that they do have now. And she talks about how Kelly's gone on to get married and have kids. Without that, that is a core part of their history. And I think that's really important when people talk about relationships in general is that I don't think you should just, you know, pack that up and forget about it and say, you know, that's it for me and my ex. I think you need to talk about how that shaped you as a person because you take that with you. And I think you need to acknowledge that in your new relationship. And it feels like, you know, I'd, obviously I'm not going to speak for Kelly, but I think the way that Alex references it is like, you know, that was a tough time, but I wouldn't be where I am without it because I learned to be vulnerable. I learned to love. Um, I will read you two two more quotes on the vulnerability. Um, bear with me. I lost this it. was real therapy for Becky. <laughs> yeah. You can tell she was like, I am going through it, Alex. I feel you, hun. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think this, this chapter was, as much as I was sort of scared about the darkness, I was I, I came out of it feeling positive in a way. I don't know if that's yeah. too much of a reach. but So I think the vulnerability part that I really liked was she was teaching me how to love and be vulnerable in a way I'd never experienced before. And if I'm being brutally honest with myself, haven't since. And then she goes on to end the chapter. Um, sorry, I'm laughing because Flo's just done like a, she's been hit in the heart. <laughs> it was it <laughs> was a lot. Um, and, and this is what I mean. Like, yeah, she's, and like I said earlier, she's obviously done so much work and, and worked on, and talked about how that relationship shaped her as a person and realised that she probably hasn't felt that vulnerable or loved again. And this is how she ends the chapter. I've grown and matured. I'm open to receiving love. I have been closed off for a very long time now, but after coming out of my last relationship, I knew I had to work on myself to get to the point where I could give someone else all of me and be there in the way they deserve. And here I am. I think that's a great way to end this section of the chat um, because... I would I would say for for that chapter alone it's worth buying the book because <laughs> that was you know I think something we could all relate to in our own experiences before we get on to some of the light relief funny moments that um Alex references in the book uh, Becky you wanted to talk about this perception of Alex having to perform at her best and the way that she was going to be perceived almost as like this ambassador for women's football um, what was a particular quote that you looked at on that? So I think this is like a general theme through the book but the one that I highlighted was during her media career I was so anxious to live up to the responsibility I felt to be twice as good as what was expected of me and I think that she talks about that during when she went on the Better Grill show and like having this responsibility to women's football to prove that women and women's footballers were like strong and capable and that this is something you should be paying attention to and I think that you see that throughout women's football now I think that those players like take on that responsibility of being like we're going to prove to you that we deserve your respect when actually I hope that we can move away from that 
in the future. I think we are, but very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a, it's a slow burn, but I agree. I think you need to move beyond the 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 point of having to like carry it on your shoulders yeah. and, and that, constantly prove yourself. That expectation doesn't just come from her. Like you see it, like everybody being like, "Oh, aren't they great role models for the little girls? Like they're just footballers and they're really good at what they do, and they don't have to be there to to prove to little girls that. And they do that. They, you know. They do do that, but but it should be up to them, right? Yeah, like if exactly. someone it should be your like choice. Do that, but it also and if someone not... wants to be a dick, like they should yeah. be like. <laughs> <laughs> and like society, like we have to do that as a whole. That's not just on, you know, some women who are doing cool things. Like we have to, we have to tell little girls ourselves that they can do it. They don't have to just have to rely on these footballers to be really cool and win stuff. And drink their own piss on Bear grills, which leads well, us perfectly. That leads us perfectly <laughs> onto the uh, light relief section. There, oh, literally light relief. There you go. Um, wh- Stay hydrated, my, guys. <laughs> one of my favourite little bits was the hilarious. I don't remember watching this program. This program coming out. Maybe I was. No. In, in I'm going to go I've got no recollection. But of this. anyway, Alex was on Sounds this awful. Bear Grylls yeah. classic reality show. It's a bit like SAS Who Dares Wins. Um, essentially, loads of celebrities going to do some Bear Grylls challenges, and the, as soon as they arrived, they had to do a urine sample, in which Alex thought it was, you know, because they wanted to check she was healthy. Actually, it's because Bear Grylls wanted to make them all drink their own pee he because that's to what he does. Piss. Can and we it's talk his about hobby. Though, as well the disrespect that Alex showed to the Everyone League else. Cup now uh, called uh, the Continental I Cup? I know. I couldn't believe. I Did they win it that. that year? 2016 was it? Well, there was a point where only Man City and Arsenal had won, won it, so it was going to be one of the two. <laughs> so I think they may have I've got done, no actually. idea, but she That's was a good question. She was captain. And in the book, she's really like, oh my God, I can't believe Arsenal were going to stop me from doing this. I'm like, Han, they should have stopped you from no doing it. No respect for the Conti I, 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 I get that she was said she was going to earn three times her salary yeah, for I'd, one yeah, appearance. Do it, yeah. um, but I was a bit like, you do have commitments to I your think, team. Uh, the thing is, like, it's up to her to do it, but it was just this, if you're you captain know, and idea it's a final. That, that Arsenal were being really horrible for yeah. suggesting maybe and then, she should and, and a few of the players suggested that yeah. she get stripped of her oh captaincy. She, she wouldn't was like, name sorry, democracy won. <laughs> yeah, she said, no, she said there were 2% and I'm not going to name names. But mm. uh, So that was really funny. And she was also gloating about how she was very hydrated and her pee was very yeah. clear compared to everyone else's that stunk. So, oh, wouldn't want to know. Another so fave of mine was um, Zendaya at the GQ <laughs> Awards saying, don't worry, hon, you're going to be fab. That was amazing. And Chadwick Boseman Loving coming over women's football. to have a chat about women's football. Do you think she said fab? Because I feel like that's really British, and I can't imagine. Zendaya no, I don't know like, if that was a direct pun. Quote, Love but, that. Um, also, Stacey Dooley's pep talk. Uh, Stacey Dooley's pep talk was my <laughs> favorite. Jesse's going to read our quote. Yeah. Okay, here we go. But put the context though. So it's Strictly. Like, okay. Alex is doing Strictly. Alex is doing Strictly. She's finding it an emotional roller coaster quote struggling with the negative comments. Stacey Dooley was in the audience. I. As the winner Love of the previous year. Stacey really? Dooley. Oh, I hate her so funny. Okay. She's cancelled in my head. So I can't quite remember funny. why, but she's cancelled. But <laughs> this is her, her pep talk. Babe, keep fucking going, okay? It's not about the judges. It's about everyone picking up the phone and voting for you. You dance for them. I would love a Stacey Dooley 
pep talk in my life. Yeah, I mean, you... if uh, if Stacey Dooley does cameo, that's why I want for my next <laughs> okay, birthday, guys. Okay, okay noted. Um, also, another, another Strictly reference was yeah. the psychic. Uh, so, Love who this. was the woman from Corrie? Catherine Tildesley. So, I do remember her being on Strictly. Anyway, they were on the Strictly tour, which I've never been on, would love to go. But uh, that <laughs> happens after the show where they go around and do dances and stuff. Anyway, they're on the Strictly tour and they were in Manchester or yeah, something? Yeah, they went to the Lowry in Salford um, Hotel. There you go. And, um, and uh, the woman from Corrie uh, decides to organise a psychic. The psychic comes over to the hotel, reads Alex's cards or palm, I don't know, and uh, mind. And then she goes, um, there's a ring. There's a ring that your nana owes you. Alex then, weeks later, is no, filming... I think it's like years later. Years no? later, is it? Is filming Who Do You Think You Are? She's about to uh, go and go to Jamaica to do the next section of the show. And her auntie pulls her to one side and cousin. says... A cousin says, um, there's something I owe you. This ring that was in your Nana's will that I, like, I've been holding on to, but it's not mine. This should be yours. And Alex says, before she even pulls out of her pocket, is it a ring? <sighs> Unbelievable. Yeah. I, I've I, always Alex, felt a bit funny. For that. Always, Catherine Tilsley, can you shoot us with <laughs> that psychic? I've always felt a bit funny about, you know, are psychics real? But I think that's all the proof we need, guys. <laughs> that is unreal. Because often you can Google things, but you can't Google that. No. Access to a will about, no, not going to happen. I don't know if there's any other bits that you guys wrote down that you felt like were little funny ones. But for me, I think that were that that those were the kind of Can best. I just say how much I respect Alex for dropping so many clans names throughout this So who's book. who? So we'll finish the episode by uh, doing our own little acknowledgements because Becky wants to shout out some of the acknowledgements in Alex's book. And I think overall we can all agree that it was an enjoyable read as the first I really loved Counter Press book club session. I recommend it to everyone. I would really recommend yeah. it. And you know, the audiobook is free, so if you don't want to buy it, that's fine, just listen to the audiobook. Becky, please, acknowledgements. So her acknowledgement to Kelly Smith. Whew. To Kelly Smith, thank you for the best gift and lesson I've ever known, how to be vulnerable and learn from heartbreak. And thank you for the best bloody present I've had in my life, my Ella, who's her dog. Um, I also think this is iconic. I've kept my other relationships private and continue to do so. But to all my other former lovers, cheers to you all. The good, the bad, the ugly. The ugly? The (laughs) ugly? For whatever reason, it didn't work out. We live and we learn and I wish you all the happiness in the world. I'll say sorry and thanks all in one. I mean, what more can I say? On that note, that's it. Sorry and thanks. Sorry and thanks. End of our podcast. The good, the bad, the ugly. Sorry and thanks. Mic drop. Counterpress book club out. We'll see you on Monday.